Good morning, Arbor. Good morning. It's good to be here today with all of you. You know, all this talk about Mariners and watching or partly watching that game last night got me to think about, you know, we're going through Philippians. We've been learning about resilient joy, and I can't help but make a connection to being a Mariners fan. If anything requires resilience in trying to find joy throughout the decades of following the Mariners, I don't know what it is except maybe my childhood team, the Cubs. Between the two teams, I've had to have nothing but resiliency and one World Series joy in like 150 years. So if nothing else, the Mariners, we love them. Uh, you know, I texted my daughter. She was following the game and kept texting me, Dad, this is so stressful. And at the end of the game, she goes, I'm so sad. I said, yeah, but I'm hopeful for next year. We got a good team. That's not like that essence of what things can do for you. So as we all grieve the end of a season, be hopeful. We got a good foundation. We went further than anybody thought, and I'm excited for what the Mariners are going to do. So I'm going to put that to bed today, and I want to talk about it for another six months. <laughs> not that I'm bitter. And because we got the Seahawks season to try to be resilient about now. So... With that said, our theme has been this in this book, in this chapter. Resilient joy is a joy that persists amid suffering, hardship, and difficult circumstances. Resilient joy is a joy that persists amid suffering, hardship, and difficult circumstances. And the idea of resilience is that it's something that can return to its original form after being bent, compressed, or stretched. Reminds me of uh, when I grew up, there was the incredible stretch man. I don't know what he was made out of, but anybody remember that at my age? It was like stretch him out, incredible stretch Armstrong, and he'd always go back to his shape. It implies the ability to recover, all right, when a detrimental force is impacting something. And that's a little bit of what we're going to be looking at in Philippians today. And the idea of joy, I think, I think um, Ryan shared this from the beginning. Joy is this supernatural delight in the presence, promises, and people of God. And that's what the heart of resilient joy is. And as we go through this today, we begin to look at what I believe to be the most important mantra in Paul's life. And I believe in all of Christianity, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We're going to look at that and we're going to figure out that joy remains no matter what. Today we examine this resilient joy in the face of a dilemma that Paul himself is facing. I don't know if you've faced any dilemmas or difficult situations in your life, but we find Paul in the midst of feeling a crossroads, a dilemma of the emotions, overwhelming and wondering and asking himself in the famous words of the great British punk rock band, should I stay or should I go? You know that song, I don't know if you remember that band, they were one of my favorites, Should I Stay or Should I Go? If you say that you are mine, I'll be here to the end of time, so you got to let me know, should I stay or should I go? I was going to have Alex up here maybe doing a little bit of that riff, that throughout the sermon, anytime we got to an appropriate part, I would just point and we'd go right into that little riff of the class, but then I thought, no, that might be making too light of what we're going to be learning today. But we find Paul imprisoned in Rome, uncertain of what his future is going to be, He's faced persecution, beatings, sufferings, imprisonment, a shipwreck. He's been pushed around the world. He's had hardship after hardship. In one part of the scripture, he says, I'm the dung of the earth. And this is a guy, we find him at the end of his life, and he's going, and he's in prison, sitting there, goes, I love the ministry I'm doing on this earth, but man, am I ready to be done? Take me away, God. I'm ready to go. 
And yet he finds himself pushing back against that thought and against the enemy going, no, I'm going to lean into the victor, my Savior, and continue to do the work he has called me to do. And if we embrace the meaning of what Paul means, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain, I believe that we will be able to live in more resilient joy ourselves. I'm going to say a quick prayer. God, I pray you just move me out of the way today, Lord. I pray that we look at your scripture, that you'll give us ears to hear, hearts to listen, and feet and hands that want to go take it out to the world, God. Give us your words today and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Last week, Ryan did a fantastic job in sharing the spirit of Paul in the previous verses. And rather than to blame God for all that is wrong around him, Paul chooses to stay and trust in God's providence. I love how he painted a good picture for us of the providence of God. And he said, and thus he will rejoice. And he reiterates this twice in verse 18, where we're going to pick it up today. And he says, and because of this, you know, that Christ was being preached in wrong motivations, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. So we'll read the passage. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. This idea of being able to rejoice, to take delight, usually in something or someone, even though Christ was being preached by others for wrong motivation or intention, Paul doesn't care because Christ is being preached and he'll rejoice. He does not get consumed about what is the true motivation of someone rather than is the message getting put out there. That's what I care about most. doesn't mean he might not correct, rebuke, and admonish, but he most is important about the message of God. And when he says rejoice, and then he pauses and he says it again. It's kind of like I'll bring up the Mariners one more time because it was a favorite moment in Toronto, bottom, I mean, sorry, in Seattle, bottom of the ninth, two outs, full count. I'm at the ballpark. Cal rallies up. He hits the ball. And at first, when he hits it, you're like, yes. Then it's traveling. You're like, yes, yes. And it's like, yes. And you're jumping up and down and screaming. I think that's what Paul is saying here. I will continue to rejoice. Yes, yes, I will rejoice because. And we're going to find out about that because. It's the polar opposite of being on the two-yard line in a Super Bowl and not giving the ball to Marshawn Lynch and screaming, no, 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 no! See, I just love sticking the needle in there, don't I? But this is where we find Paul today, stuck between that yes and that no. And he goes back to the yes, to the rejoice. And I want to dig more into that. How does Paul rejoice in persecution, false accusations, wrongful imprisonment, and others using God's message for their own gain? Because he holds firm to what he knows. And if we look at this verse, he says three things that he knows to be true about God and his relationship with God. The first one is in verse verse 19. I know this will lead to my deliverance. I know this will lead to my deliverance, either from this prison to come back to you or from this life on earth to be with you, Father. Either way, Paul has lived long enough, he has journeyed long enough, he has witnessed long enough to know there is an end to this season. And that's hard for us to feel when we're stuck in the messy middle of a season. But God delivers. 
Paul knows as a Jewish man, the whole history of Jew, Judaism and the Jewish nation was deliverance, enslavement, deliverance, rebellion, enslavement, deliverance. But he's not saying this as a Jew now. He's saying this as a child, a slave of God. He will deliver me one way or the other. The next that he says is in verse uh, 20, I know I will not be put to shame in anything. I will not be put to shame in anything. Why? He says, if you look at verse 20 here, again, I'm trying, according to my ear, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that in all boldness, Christ. Because he puts his boldness and confidence not in himself and what people think about him, but what they think about Christ. Because if people reject you for your message, for your love, for your preaching, for your witness, they're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. That's what the shame is about. It's so heartbreaking. And Paul says it's not about me being ashamed. It's about my boldness and confidence I can go forward with in Christ. It doesn't matter what's happened. In Christ, no shame. The last thing he knows is again in verse 20, I know Christ is exalted in my body. Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. There he goes again. If I live... Christ is exalted by the work I do for him. If I die, he'll be exalted by what I've done for him. And as I enter his presence, I can praise and worship him the rest of my life. Now, how did Paul arrive at this? He didn't arrive at it easily. It's a life journey. He's not concerned about vindicating himself or validating his work or elevating what he's done and showing people, look what all I've done for you. No, he comes to this at a humble approach. Spoiler alert, in chapter two, he breaks it down. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. It's nothing to be gained or achieved or grasped or held up in honor. It's about service as a slave and a servant of God. The others that Paul looks to is beyond himself, to people that need the message of God. And oftentimes we forget this, but this is where Paul is heading. As he's standing up again saying, yes, I rejoice because we get to his mantra. If you have a Bible, you have a, uh, your phone out, you should highlight this verse. Because for me, this next verse, I believe, is the crux of Christianity. Verse 21, Philippians 1. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Twelve words. I think you could sum up everything Paul did in his life in these words. I think if we understand these words, we could sum up our Christian life. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about this verse. We stand here face to face with one of the sublimest and greatest statements ever made. Even by this mighty apostle Paul of our Lord Jesus Christ and Savior, there is a sense in which anyone who faces this verse must feel that he stands on very sacred ground. We must look at this verse remembering it is a living experience, a statement entwined in the story of Paul's life, yet also analyze it in a sacred manner to fully realize its meaning and purpose. And that's what I hope to do today. I love how he says this mantra, this verse, is entwined in Paul's experience. I believe that there was a moment in Paul's life before he was a believer that was branded onto his mind. That was a catalyst for him becoming a savior. If you remember, Paul used to be a very legalistic Pharisee who went about persecuting and murdering Christians, imprisoning them. That's what his role was. And if you go back to Acts chapter 7, there's a story in there about the apostle Stephen. 
and when he got martyred. And it says in there that the men that were stoning Stephen threw their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul, who had become Paul. And he stood there and witnessed the story of Stephen. And I believe that witnessing of watching Stephen stand there as he's getting stoned, first of all, say, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then at the very last moment, the last thing Stephen says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I believe it is in that moment something got seared into Paul that years later when he was struck down on the road to Damascus and Christ called unto him, he resonated with this thought, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't think you can escape the story of your own faith. Your faith is not just a separate thing. It's entwined and wrapped up into the whole experience of your life. And the reason Paul can say this, not in a prideful, legalistic manner as a Pharisee enemy, for me to live is Christ. Come on, everybody. But as a servant, broken, he remembers his story, where he came from, who he was, what he's been redeemed from. I think we as Christians, we get ourselves far removed from who we were without Christ. And for some of us who maybe were saved at a very young age, you don't have this big redemption story, but you don't need that to understand who would you be without Christ. And I think that's what Paul is trying to say here, is reminding us, who are we, who are we without Christ? And for him, this is what he walks through. So I want to break down verse 21. We're going to spend a good amount of time in here. Let's break it down this way. The first phrase, for to me. It's a conviction in the Greek. It's a statement. It's basically this idea of, I can't speak for you, but I'll speak for myself. That you can't order eggs and pancakes without bacon. I don't know about you, but for me, you just can't do that. I don't know about you, but for me, you can't have ice cream without some kind of topping on top of it. Maybe that's just not you. Now, it's much deeper than this, but it's a strong conviction that I don't know about for you, but for me, it doesn't matter what life says, it's what the scripture says. And that's what Paul's getting back to. He's saying, in response to everything that's going on around me, in response to everything I've been through, for me, in my belief, in my heart, I believe one thing. Here's the deal, people. You can try to live your Christian life based on what you've been taught and others have told you to believe, but until it becomes your own, it doesn't change anything. It's got to be personal, local, and immediate to you. Otherwise, you're just trying to live it out for everybody else. So this is Paul's conviction. He says, for to me, my conviction. The next thing he says is, to live as Christ. There's two words you can use for live in the scripture. One is this bios. It's like the busyness of life. It's the external busyness we get wrapped up in. Or there's the zoe. And the zoe is this essence of life. It's what makes me tick. It's the center, the constant of who I am. It's why I do what I do. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying the Christian life, it's not a principle. It's not a plan. It's not a path. It's a journey. It's rather about a person named Christ than everything you had to plan. And he's saying for me to live as Christ. It reminds me of a story that Dr. Wayne Barber would share of a man who was at a fair and he looked up and he saw a man on the hill pumping a well, pumping away. And he sat there and he ate some food. And as he ate food, he watched this man just vigorously pumping that well. 30 minutes, 
40 minutes, 50 minutes. He's like, my goodness, that man has some stamina. So he got up and started walking up the hill towards the man. And as he got near the man, he noticed that it was really just a wooden figure with metal elbow hinges. And it was just pumping water out of the ground. And in curiosity, he looked up the hill and he walked up the hill a little bit further and he found an artesian well. And then it struck him that this artesian well was running downhill towards where the figure was, and the figure was not really pumping water at all. Rather, the well was feeding the figure to keep it looking like it was pumping. And what we take away from this is this, is that whose energy are you living by? Are you living by your own energy, trying to pump all the time to live for Christ, rather than to live in Christ? And what Paul is saying is this, you have a well of life uphill in Christ that flows down through you, and he's not saying here to live for Christ. He says, for me to live is Christ. It's Christ in me and through me. The well flows through us and gives us the life to be able to live in joy, because you can't do it on your own. I know I can't. Man, it gets frustrating and tiring and exhausting. Some of the things I have to tackle just on a weekly basis at school with family and kids. If it was up to me to keep pumping the well, it would run dry. But the fountain of God flows into that and that's what gives us a power. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, do you know what makes me tick? Do you know what my essence is? It's this lifelong learning process that in the midst of disappointment and hurt, I'm learning to let Jesus be my life my source. Because for to me, to live is Christ, in Christ and through Christ. Now that may seem like a simple concept, but consider where Paul's writing this from. He doesn't know what lays before him, but he's going to continue to work out his salvation with all fear and trembling in Christ. The third thing he says is to die is gain. My gain is in Christ. Either way, God is glorified either by the fruit I'm producing or by the fruit God produces. In Christ, for Christ, not for me, not out of selfish ambition, but in humility for Christ. I take you back to Stephen again. And when he's watching Stephen get stoned, and he says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Paul understands there's life after this earth. What's interesting about that story of Stephen I get this from my former pastor. I worked for a long time, Hutch. Maybe you've heard me share this before. There's only two instances in the whole scripture where it shows Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. One is in judgment. The other is in ushering Stephen into heaven. All the other times it says he's seated at the right hand of God. And I wonder if in that moment for Stephen, as his eyes went up to heaven, and that last breath he was taking of, what, what am I doing? Why is this all worth it? I'm getting, I'm getting killed now. I just spoke the truth in front of the Sanhedrin, and now they're stoning me. And in that moment of need right there to, to help him understand that it's not all in vain, it's not just a chasing after the wind, it's not just vanity, Jesus has overcome. And he stands up and he goes, yes, 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 I see you, Stephen, come home. Come home because it's even better here than it is there. And I think Paul goes back to that at times in the story and wonders if Stephen, the man that I allowed to get martyred and stoned, can stand there and see life is good here and life is better here, how do I live in that same thought and same mindset? 
And so he comes back and he says that the entrance, the gaining to living is not in the exit and the loss of living. We need to stop seeing the world as something I'm losing when we leave here and rather something we're gaining when we get to heaven. The more fully we blind, we blind ourselves to this, the harder it gets. For believers, our death is gaining our greatest possession, eternity with Christ. It's not losing something, it's gaining finally the purpose for why we're living on earth, to relish relationship with him forever. Now, we get to a dilemma and a polarity here. Even though Paul is saying this in this mantra, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, he gets really vulnerable and open with the um, Philippine church here. In verse 22 and 26, he shares something about, but yet I feel torn. I've got these two feelings inside of me. I don't even think it's a dilemma. A dilemma is often more like there's two choices you could make and Either one of them are good or both of them aren't very great. And you got to make one. This is more what I call in leadership a polarity. It's the managing of two truths at the same time. The two truths of the work I'm doing here on earth is meaningful and necessary for God. Yet I desire in all my heart to be with God. How do I do both and? It's, a dilemma is an either or. A polarity is both and. And that is oftentimes the most difficult thing to manage in life. With children, how do I parent and discipline my children to do right and love them and honor them and help them at the same time? It's a both and. It's kind of like, has anybody ever heard the the comedian Brian Regan? Am I the only one that's a Brian Regan fan? You got to find him. He's hilarious. He does this bit about playing Little League Baseball. How he's not an athlete, but his dad makes him sign up for Little League. He's on the team. He doesn't even know how to play. He goes through this whole bit of like, I'm standing up there trying to swing a bat, and people are yelling at me, good eye, good eye, good eye. And he's like, I don't know what to yell at them. He's like, good arm, good foot, good foot. He goes, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. And the ball almost hits me in the head, and I duck out of the way, and they yell it again, good eye, Brian. He goes, well, yeah, the ball was going to hit me. I ducked. And he goes, and then they put me out, you know, where they put the kids that can't do anything in the league, right field. He goes, I'm out there in right field, just spinning around. And the coach yells at me, coach yells at me, Brian, two outs. How many outs, Brian? And Brian goes, grape, grape snow cone. When game's done, we get grape snow cone. And he goes on and goes, grape snow cone. Whether we play full game or half game, I still get snow cone. Grape, grape's my favorite. Well, cherry, cherry's good too. Cherry's good flavor. Cherry's good, but grape's better. Grape snow cone. Good job, Brian. Snow cones for everybody. And he goes on and on. You know, if only the dilemmas in life we had were like a grape snow cone or a cherry snow cone, wouldn't that be the pinnacle of like bliss? That was our hardest decision to make. Like a dog, do I sleep on that couch? Do I sleep on this chair? Or do I go bug you and sleep right at your feet? But unfortunately, that's not the life we're called to live, is it? It's much more difficult. And Paul's not going to throw just some big mantra out there and say, now just go do it. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps and live this. No, he gets vulnerable. Let's look at verse 22 to 26. But if I am to live in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. Right there, I just don't know what to do. But I am hard-pressed from both directions. Hear that. I'm torn. This is difficult for me. I'm being vulnerable with you here. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all your progress and join the faith so that your pride in Christ Jesus may be abundant because of me by your coming to you again. So Paul pulls back the curtain for a moment and just says, this is difficult. I feel pulled in two directions. I don't know what to do and I'm waffling for this, yet I still have so much work to do. I want to be in heaven. I see Austin to be here right now playing the Clash song. Should I stay or should I go? Right there. I will not sing anymore for you. Should I stay? Should I go? What do I do? I don't know if you've ever been to that point with Christ in your life. Seriously, God? One more thing? I- I'm done. I-, I cannot push my way through this anymore. This is, I- I've already got enough going on. I didn't need this one more thing. I know I've been there. It's not easy. But just as quickly, Paul shifts his decisions to, I will remain. How did Paul arrive at that? Because he's convinced of a few things here. And I want you to see what he's convinced of. And this is where I think we fail, or I fail as a Christian, because I don't know if I'm really convinced of this all the time. The first, first thing he's convinced of, to, to live in Christ and to serve others, he's convinced of two things. One, in verse 22, it will mean fruitful labor. It will mean fruitful labor. That's a purpose. We need to pause. If all you're doing is just living for Christ, you might not be producing fruit or doing anything for Christ. Paul lived in Christ and for Christ to produce fruit. He knew that my work here is intentional. I'm trying to build the kingdom of God. I don't care anything about what I'm trying to build for myself. I'm trying to build the kingdom of God. The next thing he knew was this in verse 25. I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. He knows that his work is making progress. It may not feel like it sometimes. may not seem like it sometimes. But you are making progress in Christ because Christ never keeps people in one place. He loves you too much to let you stay where you are. He will continue to move you forward into presence and relationship with him. Verse 22 is about progress. Verse 26 then takes us to this. So that your pride in Christ Jesus may be abundant because I'm coming to you again. Here's my point. Joy is in Christ's abundance, not ours. The joy is in the abundance of Christ going on around us rather than what may be happening to us individually. Either way, God's gonna be glorified in Christ and for Christ, not for me, not for you, for Christ. And I think as Christians, we get our loss of joy because we are not engaged in a fruitful labor that's producing fruit for God's abundance on earth. We're not planting a garden and weeding and tending to it so we can just collect all the fruit for ourselves. No, it's for others. We don't plant a field full of grain just so we can have, you know, grain to make wonderful bread and beer and cakes. I didn't say that, sorry. And cakes and all these wonderful things. No, it's for the abundance of the harvest for Christ to populate heaven. We get stuck on what's the abundance in it for me. And Paul says it's not that. It's the abundance in Christ. We need to take Christ and pour it out on earth more. We need more of Christ on this broken, sinful earth. And the only way I can do that is by staying. But even if he takes me, I know that you, who are left behind, will continue. So now what? 
we get Paul's mission, we get his desire, we come to verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and this too is from God. He says three things here again I think are important, because you can't do this on your own. One thing I've learned for sure is I have not arrived to where I am in my walk with God based on my own wisdom. (laughs) That would be a dangerous thing. If I wrote a book called Scott's Wisdom, it might be one page and it'd be probably blank. All right? Maybe the word on it would be, um, talk to others. Seriously. And what he says here, listen to what he says here. He says three things. All right? Standing firm in one spirit. All right? He wants us to stand together in harmony. Not in divisiveness. Too often the Christian community is divisive. We're arguing about things we shouldn't be arguing about. We're debating things we shouldn't be debating about. We're not standing in harmony. Before this, he says, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. Live with honor. Live with honor. Doesn't mean you won't make mistakes. Doesn't mean you don't need to go and get forgiveness. But try to live your life in an honorable manner, above reproach. Live in honor. All right, stand in harmony together. And the last one, he says, strive together for the faith of the gospel. Strive in unity. Notice he says this, you're not gonna get away from strife. There will not be life on earth without strife on earth. And those that strive together, survive together. And those that strive together, thrive together. You cannot do, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, on your own. You know who was in prison with Paul? Luke, Onesimus. Other people came with him. He was not alone on this journey. He knew he couldn't do it on alone. That's why he said, I'm sending this person back to you. I'm sending Timothy to you. I'm sending Titus to you because he knew we need others. Joy is not a thing you can arrive at on your own. It took Christ on the cross, the Holy Spirit in you, to get at this resilient joy that we have. It was never meant to be found on your own. It was meant to be found in Christ, in fellowship with others, so that we can live in honor, stand in harmony, and strive in unity. And then he says, and don't be alarmed by the opposition. Duh. It's going to be there. It's going to happen. And then he closes with, remember always. Verse 29 to 31. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer on his behalf. Experience the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear to me. Paul's saying we've been granted two things in Christ's death and resurrection. Eternal relationship with him and unfortunately earthly suffering for him. That's the way the gospel's written. And that's difficult to understand It's the striving, struggle, persevering. The last point I want to leave you with is this. We are called to not only believe, but also to suffer on his behalf. Now, this doesn't mean I want you sitting around in misery, woe is me like Eeyore. I guess it's another Monday. It's a birthday party, but I don't like cake. No. 
That's the difficulty of what Paul is saying. I live in suffering on behalf of my God with a resilient joy that doesn't make sense on this earth. It confounds the wise and it confounds the guards who become believers. Do we confound the world that in the midst of our suffering and a terrible world at times that we have resilient joy? I contend that we struggle to live in joy because we don't really know Christ or his character. The Alpha and the Omega. I'm going to close with this. The beginning and the end. That's who God is. The Alpha, the Omega. The beginning and the end. We put our trust in God at some point in our life to begin our journey with Christ. Someday there's going to be the Omega, the end, and Christ will be there to greet us. The difficulty is this messy middle. This big squiggly line of life that we try to navigate, that gets hard, that gets dark, that gets difficult, that has its yes moments and then has its no moments. The successes, the misplaced hope, the disappointment, the joy, the celebrations, all of this in the messy middle. That's where the struggle is to really say, for me to live as Christ to die is gain. Resilient joy lives in the belief that my life is about Christ. That suffering is relationship with Christ. That death brings me closer to Christ. And that resilient joy is not found in me, it's found in Christ. Paul is exhorting the church of Philippi and us today. Just as you have seen me live, suffer, grow, strive, and struggle for Christ, you also see that I believe, I remain, I continue. Because resilient joy means for me to live as Christ. To die is gain. Let's pray. God, this is an easy thing to say, 12 simple words. It's a lot harder to live. And it's not just something we post on the mirror. We read it every day. We say the mantra and life's going to get better. God, this comes down to a legitimate relationship with you. And the ability to find our times, we just have to sit down and say, God, I'm done. I got nothing left in me. What am I doing here? And for you to refill us with the well of life that you are so we can get up and go forward back into what we need to face with a resilient joy that produces the fruit so that you are abundant in the lives of people around us. God, may our joy produce abundance of Christ in the corner of the world in which we are living. In Jesus' name, amen.